Hi, Greg. Hi there, Serge. So you wrote a book about uh, mirror neurons and demystifying their role. Uh, maybe we could start with the beginning. What are mirror neurons? Sure. Uh, well, mirror neurons are uh, cells in the motor cortex or motor system of macaque monkeys. Um, they were discovered uh, in the context of doing some basic research on motor control, trying to figure out um, how uh, macaque monkeys, uh, and by uh, generalization humans, um, may code uh, movement plans in terms of um, object-based coordinates. That is, when you reach for an object, you have to take information about the object shape and location and size into account to guide your reach. Um, you pre-shape your hand as you're reaching for a cup versus a pen, for example. And so uh, Giacomo Rizzolatti in, in Parma and his group were studying this process in macaques, and they had discovered a class of cells in a motor area known as F5, the frontal area number five, that seemed to respond or that did respond both to uh, during reaching behaviors and during the observation of um, object shape. Um, and the idea that they were exploring was that these were cells that were taking object shape information and using that to select um, from a vocabulary of possible grasps um, the appropriate grasp uh, gesture for um, for reaching that object. So they were studying uh, this population of cells, and uh, as they were swapping the objects in and out of the display case um, during the experiment, they noticed that some of the cells uh, that they were recording from started responding to the uh, experimenter's own actions. Um, so these were cells that responded when the monkey generated movements as well as when they were observing the experimenter generate similar movements. And this is this is basically the um, response properties of mirror neurons. They respond both during action execution and action observation. So that was the basic discovery in the context in which it was made. And then the big question became, what are they doing? What's what's going on with this uh, these cells such that they respond to actions as well as the, the execution of actions? Okay. So um, from discovering that these very specific cells are activated during action and also during observation of action came the leap that they are responsible for more than that. Uh, that's correct. So in, in trying to figure out what they were doing, um, the most obvious uh, interpretation or function that these cells could be uh, supporting is direct imitation. So if you have a cell, for example, that um, responds both during uh, observation and execution, you might imagine that that cell enables the, a the animal to directly imitate um, actions that it's observing. Um, and that was considered briefly in uh, early on when after mirror neurons were discovered. But the, that possibility was ultimately rejected on the basis of the observation that macaques don't seem to imitate like that. They don't do a kind of uh, direct imitation like humans do, um, do much more. Um, and so that was, that was discarded as a possible interpretation of these cells, and they were looking for other uh, possible interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, there was a theory that had been around since the 1950s in the speech domain, my area of research, um, called the motor theory of speech perception, which held that our 
that when we perceive speech sounds, the goal of perceiving a speech sound neurally or computationally is not to recover its acoustic form, but to recover the gesture of the speech, the speaker. That is the, the motor plan that generated the sound that you're listening to. So it was very much a motor theory of perception. Uh, and mirror neurons kind of looked like that. They were responding during the observation of actions. And so the Palmer researchers considered the hypothesis that maybe these cells are responsible for action understanding. That's how the monkeys understand uh, uh, others' actions. And the mechanism they proposed was one of simulation. Um, and the logic kind of goes like this. Uh, when the monkey generates an action, uh, say a reaching action towards something, it knows what it's doing. It knows its intentions behind the movement. Um, when it observes another animal uh, generating an action, if it can simulate those movements in its own motor system, then by the same uh, token, it will be able to understand other people's actions. So you simulate to allow understanding, and that's the basic idea. Yeah, but so uh, in a way, the part in there is not just uh, that it's possible to simulate in order to understand, but the question and some of what you discuss in your book is about the nature of understanding. Is how we understand things based on uh, basically imitating the movement. And so it raises the question of how we know what we know and how we understand what we understand and how we attach meaning to things. Uh, that's exactly right. The, the big problem with this idea is that um, gen- that the movements themselves contain meaningful information or that by observing or simulating the actions, it will automatically tell us what the meaning of those actions is. And if you think about it for a little while, it, it's obvious that it's not the case. Um, and there's, there's several reasons why, um, if we look closely. So, for example, if I, um, if I reach for a pitcher um, and tip it over so that it pours water out into a cup, um, that action can mean very different things depending on the context. So uh, if if there's no water in the in the pitcher, um, it's it it it's just a tilting motion. It doesn't really do anything. It's not pouring. If there's water in there, then we can think about it as pouring. If we think about it from the perspective of the uh, the cup, then it's filling. Um, and uh, the movements are identical, so you can generate very similar identical motor patterns and achieve the same uh, achieve the same um, goal. Mm-hmm. Or um, so the, the movements are the movements really don't define the meaning. They're actually quite ambiguous, um, and it really depends on the context. And a lot of the mirror neuron experiments demonstrated this: that the same movement that the monkey observed gave rise to mirror neuron activity, not depending on the movement, but depending on the context. And that's in the mirror neuron literature. So it's, it's not the movements that, themselves that are defining it. So so the interesting part then is uh, um, that, you know, the, it's more complex. It's, the, the movement itself is one source of information, and the processing involves many sources of information. Uh, right. So in order to understand something, um, you need all this additional context, and the movement is only a, a small part of it. Um, you could, you know, it may be that perceptually it's an important part, obviously, to, to process the movement, but it doesn't mean that, that 
simulating that movement in your own body is going to tell you much of anything. And we know empirically that uh, in individuals who don't have the ability to move, um, they seem to be able to understand the world quite well. We all can understand actions that we've never performed uh, previously, um, say a, a reverse slam dunk in a basketball game, for example. Not many of us can do that, but we can understand that quite well. Uh, and other animals that, that, that have movements that we can't possibly um, generate, we can still understand, so flying or slithering or uh, things like that. And there's good evolutionary reasons why we would want to understand the actions of other animals, because sometimes they're predators and we want to know what they're up to. Sometimes they're prey. We want to predict what they might do so that we can catch them better. Um, so there's lots of reasons why we should have neural systems that allow us to understand the actions of others without having to simulate um, these actions. So, so in other words, what you're saying is that um, mirror neurons are uh, certainly a source of information, but they're not the source and certainly not the source of meaning. Well, not quite. Um, the way I view mirror neurons is they're essentially important for motor control. That mm -hmm. uh, Just like these cells in F5 are important for uh, using uh, sensory information about object shape to guide action selection, I see mirror neurons as, as doing exactly the same thing. They're using, except instead of using object shape, they're using um, action. They're using dynamic information about movement to guide responses. Generally, you can um, you can understand that uh, the actions of other animals, uh, other people, other animals is important for selecting our own actions. If I thrust my hand out towards you uh, when we first meet, you'll uh, likely respond with a similar gesture um, to shake hands. Um, if I do something else, like throw a punch, you're going to want to select a different action, a blocking or a ducking action, for example. Um, and presumably, this is very important in the monkey world as well, and it's that sort of action selection function that I think mirror neurons are actually doing. I think the understanding is coming from different circuits. It's coming from uh, sensory uh, circuits that are involved in recognizing actions, connecting them to meaning, integrating them with context, and, and all sorts of things. The involvement of the motor system Uh, is just to select actions that are appropriate to to the understanding that we get from other systems. Um, so, um, is there maybe some kind of a hierarchy there of some things that uh, some situations where there's more uh, instinctual reactions and some cases where there's more um, involved, more processed reactions? Uh, well, Certainly it's the case that we have sort of reflex-like responses. So if I, like I said, if I throw a punch at you, reflexively you're going to duck or block or do something like that. Um, I think one way to think about it is in terms of general brain organization into what's often been referred to as dorsal uh, and ventral streams, uh, sensory streams. So the dorsal stream is thought to be involved in um, uh, sensory motor integration, Um, this is a, uh, a parietal frontal circuit um, that is taking sensory information and using that to guide actions. And that is a um, can be thought of as a more reflexive online immediate system. Um, that's the system that mirror neurons are part of. And then there's a ventral stream circuit that's more involved in recognizing um, 
what th- this is going on in the sensory environment. And you can think of that as taking sensory information and, and trying to link it up to um, medial temporal lobe structures that are involved in memory, uh, episodic memory, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, so you can you can think of it as kind of hierarchical in the sense that you have a, uh, in some sense, a lower level sensory motor circuit um, that can respond reflexively, um, taking information from uh, a uh, a more cognitive if, um, or a higher level conceptual system that's involved in recognizing, attaching meaning, attaching emotional relevance to. Um, information that's in the environment. So yeah, I think, I think it, it is kind of helpful to think about organization of these circuits in terms of that kind of hierarchy and placing mirror neurons and other sensory motor circuits in, within one stream that's not particularly involved in recognition, but in, involved in, in taking action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and involved in taking action, uh, but there is a difference anyway in the action that's being taken in terms of the context. Um, so that's where you would make the difference, say, between the action you take uh, at first and then the action you take once more you've had time to process in a higher level. Yeah, um Certainly it's the case that, that some things are very reflexive. I mean, generally you can think of the nervous system as as being layers of control. So at the lowest level, you have things like spinal reflexes, which will get triggered automatically. But then on top of that, you have uh, other circuits that are built to modulate that low-level reflexive response because we don't always want to to respond reflexively. Sometimes, depending on the situation, we may not want to release that hot pan knowing that it might make more of a mess uh, if we drop it than if we quickly set it down or do something else. So, so, so yes, always the, it's, it's always the case that we have some sort of uh, higher level control over, over these things. Um, uh, so we can decide after observing an action and understanding it, whether we want to respond to it or not. Um, and of course there's degrees of how, how reflexive our responses are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the important thing is that, um, that, Mirror neurons are uh, essentially in a uh, a motor control circuit that um, that they aren't the basis of understanding. They're kind of the endpoint of understanding. They respond after the understanding takes place, which is uh, very much characteristic of um, of the way that these cells respond in monkeys. So, for example, um, in one experiment. Um, the researchers uh, placed an object uh, behind a screen um, so that the monkey couldn't see it anymore and then reached for it and mirror neurons fired. Um, it's interesting that mirror neurons will not fire if uh, if the um, experimenter is reaching for nothing or just pantomiming a reach. That object has to be there um, in order for that to happen. Um, when... But it doesn't physically have to be there in the sense that you can put it behind a screen and that is physically in view. You can put it behind a screen, the monkey knows it's there, and it will respond to it, um, even uh, even though it can't see it. So, so what, I want to just uh, interrupt you here, because sure. as you're talking, you're clarifying something for me. When you first said uh, at the beginning of your answer something, that understanding comes first, 
in a way, it takes me a little bit in a loop because um, I think of uh, the word understanding as referring to more uh, conceptual, abstract understanding as if, in a way, rational thinking preceded action. And as you're talking more about uh, about this, it's actually something different that's coming up. It's not understanding as uh, some kind of an abstract reasoning, but having a context so that reaching is not a gesture in and of itself, but it's reaching for something. And it's that mixture of a gesture and the goal and the total context that is what you call understanding, or is that what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, if we just go back to the, to the experiments that, uh, show when mirror neurons fire and when they don't, um, they will, they will fire if there is a, if there is an object to be grasped. Um, they won't fire if there's not an object to be grasped. And, and that's gonna depend on the context, the non-motoric context. Um, and so there's got to be some, uh, level of understanding of what the goal of that actual action is going to be before the mirror neurons would even fire. Um, the typical interpretation uh, out there in terms of mirror neurons is, th- is that they fire to tell you what the goal is. But if they're firing um, when, uh, if they have to know what the goal is in order to fire, then then some level of understanding needs to be taking place before this circuit gets recruited. Um, and so, yes, I do think uh, that there is some sort of a contextual understanding of what the goal of a reach is and what uh, actions that might um, map onto in the monkey before that these cells will actually fire. Okay, so so then in a way, even at the the level of something relatively basic like mirror neurons, we're still in a system where it's not just uh, sensory is pure stimulus and pure stimulus gives the reaction, but uh, even in that case, we have a more complex process where we are attaching context and processing information before uh, the reaction happens. Uh, sure, yeah, and just think of your everyday life. If we were completely reflexive, every cup, every object that you looked at, you would reflexively reach for, or anyone who reached out for something or, or did something, you would mirror it. Um, or uh, well, perform you know, a similar action. When, when you say this, actually, it's an interesting part. One of the reasons that the concept of mirror neurons caught on so well with uh, psychotherapists is that in our everyday life seeing clients, we catch ourselves uh, mirroring, quote-unquote, the movements, the hand gestures, the body language, the moving of hands, the moving of leg of our clients, and vice versa. So uh, in that way... Uh, it's 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 very tempting to 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 jump into it and say, oh, this must be mirror neurons, quote unquote. Yes, that is a, a documented phenomenon. It's referred to as the chameleon effect, and it's something that I discuss in the book, um, in the chapter on imitation. Um, humans do it. Macaques don't do it, which is kind of interesting um, because macaques have mirror neurons and they have the system that presumably would allow this, and yet they don't do it. So it's something something beyond mirror neurons that's actually allowing this mm-hmm. ability. Um, uh, what's it for? It seems to be serve a social function. Um, so th- these sorts of things have been demonstrated experimentally um, uh, in, in work that uh, has people um, 
performing an irrelevant task in the company of a of a, a confederate to the experiment who's generating some behaviors and when the confederate scratches their head the the ex, the, the, um, the experimental subject will tend to scratch their head and so on um, uh, the te- the interpretation of this chameleon re- uh, um, effect is that it's serving a social function to essentially um, uh, enable social acceptance or provide in-group status or or something like that. It's interesting that humans tend not to imitate or mirror people that they don't like or don't identify with. So this isn't uh, it is a kind of unconscious imitation, uh, mirroring if you want to call it that. Um, but it is not um, a, a dumb process. It's not a reflexive process. Presumably what's happening, with, as with the case of other kinds of mirroring or motor control, is that there is some sort of higher-level circuit that is controlling um, or enabling this process to take place. Um, and it's that process. We want to understand what's happening with this kind of chameleon effect uh, mirroring. Mm-hmm. We, need, we need to think about what this higher-level circuit is doing such that it can activate the lower-level uh, mirror-like um, circuit. Right, right. And so, you know, um, the image of mirror is the same that, say, can be used uh, in uh, contemplative um, uh, approaches to life, that wish that our mind were like a mirror that simply reflects the world as it is, and with some training and, uh, and skill, we can eliminate what gets in the way of that and have the purity of outside experience. And what you're reinforcing and what you're saying is uh, that actually everything in our brain is designed to interpret experience as opposed to reflect it. Well, um, if we look to perceptual science, the perceptual neuroscience, so, so you're talking about things that are way beyond my ability to kind of uh, comprehend myself, um, fairly abstract things. But if we kind of ground those ideas in perceptual science, we know as a matter of fact that we don't simply perceive or resonate with the world. Our brain constructs an actively a representation of what uh, the world looks like. Uh, and um, so, yes, every if that's true, even at the perceptual level, even in perceiving cups and things like that, um, then if you scale up to human experience or more complicated situations, that with more force is a construction of our um, of our mind um, in terms of how it interprets the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and so. Um in a way, where does this bring us in terms of um, um, the concept of how we know what we know, how we experience what we, how we conceptualize what we experience, you know, and that whole concept and discussion you have in the book about, uh, you know, embodied experience, embodied cognition. Um, on the one hand, you know, there is, it seems like, we must have evolved in a way that we developed um, abilities to deal with the world that were more complex but based on simpler processes. On the other hand, uh, such possible um, mechanisms as mirror neurons appear flaws as explanations of it. Yeah, the the uh, embodied cognition movement is an interesting uh, thing. Um, I think there are parts of it that are uh, that are quite accurate and reasonable. So uh, one of the things I like about it is is 
the movement tries to take complicated cognitive processes, um, and cognitive is kind of a loaded term, uh, as I talk about in the book, but um, co- complicated processes like categorization or uh, problem solving or decision making, things like that, and try to try to think about how these might be done in terms of lower-level circuits, sensory motor circuits. And I think that's an interesting research direction to take. Um, where I think that the um, program has gone wrong is um, this notion of, of uh, simulating. Um, uh, so basically the idea is this, the way we, the way we um, think about, say, you know, cats or dogs or something, is we simulate the sensory experience. And that's often taken as an explanation of how it's done. Oh, we just simulated in the, the concept of cat in our sensory and motor systems or whatever, and that's how we understand it. But this actually doesn't tell us much at all. I mean, simulation is uh, is is just a, a, a term for basically information processing. And what we really want to do is figure out what's, what happens in the initial um, process. So to say that we simulate our experiences with cats in order to understand them, that's fine. But then we want to know well, what is this experience with cats? How is it coded in our sensory motor systems or whatever? Um, to give rise to our understanding in the first place. That's to say that we simulate it doesn't really help. It just kind of um, renames the problem, essentially. Right, right. It's like calling it a process, essentially. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and so the embodied, the embodied program is, is interesting, but I think as a, as a replacement for traditional cognitive psychology, um, it, it's, it has failed. It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't really change much of anything except to, except to look for lower-level processes in the brain, which themselves are quite abstract um, uh, in, term, in trying to explain some of these uh, higher-level behaviors. So um, the, uh, uh, the flaw, as you see it, is that um, it... Um, um, it tries to provide an explanation for what happens, but in a way that doesn't match uh, the information we have about how it happens. That's right. There's lots of empirical evidence that I discussed in the book um, showing that essentially you don't need a motor system in order to understand actions. And I, I go through that in the speech case, um, which is uh, a domain that mirror neurons were first uh uh, generalized to in humans that really speech was really the human connection between monkey mirror neurons and what's happening in humans because we have a lot more data on that. Um, and then there was this motor theory that was uh, of speech perception that was out there. Incidentally, that theory was had been rejected by speech and language scientists um, before mirror neurons were discovered. Um, so it was kind of a poor analogy to use to uh, to help interpret mirror neurons since the theory was essentially dead. Um, but there's evidence, for example, that individuals with cerebral palsy uh, who can't control their speech uh, muscles um, and have never spoken can nonetheless understand speech quite well. There's examples from people uh, who can't um, who can't uh, uh, move and can understand actions quite well. Um, uh, for example, in apraxia uh, or in congenital disorders like cerebral palsy or ALS or other things like that. Um, there are examples of people who uh, can't 
um, generate emotional facial expressions. Um, this is Mobius syndrome, uh, who can nonetheless uh, uh, understand emotional facial expressions as well as anybody else. Mm-hmm. So there's there's example after example like this that show that you don't need um, the ability to move in order to understand. So this this explanation is just empirically false. Right, right. Um, so so it's not necessarily that um, we are replicating the movement uh, in order to understand it, but that maybe the information about movement is accessed by that part of our brain or mind that processes information, that processes uh, representations, and uh, is part of premotor uh, influences or premotor uh, information. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's another area that uh, isn't discussed much in the mirror neuron literature um, that's been discovered in uh, macaque monkeys as well as in humans, uh, and that's the superior, te- superior temporal sulcus, which seems to respond quite well to the perception of um, all sorts of movements and eye gaze and interesting interactions between eye gaze and observed movements and and this sort of thing. And this this region is probably... The, the hub for um, understanding um, actions. Um, in, in humans, it's been involved in biological motion perception. So it's a good candidate for an area that is processing this sort of information and relating it to contextual information, to long-term memories, to all these sorts of things. And I think um, for actions um, that are recognized in this way and that are appropriate for generating a response, because um, not all, not everything we observe is... Um, selected for response, um, then this information can be via the sensory motor, parietal motor, parietal frontal circuits can then be mapped onto motor circuits for action selection that may or may not be movement related, uh, sorry, mirror related. So if I thrust my hand out to shake your hand, you're going to generate a mirror movement. But if mm-hmm. I, like I said, throw a punch, you don't want to generate a mirror movement, movement in that case. Um, and so this, I, I see this mirror neurons as part of a much broader sensory motor circuit, only some of which are coding mirror-like movements. Great. Um, yeah. There are plenty others that code anti-mirror movements, and, and those were actually discovered... Uh, alongside mirror neurons in macaque monkeys in the original experiments, but those were not discussed uh, in uh, theoretically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great, great. So, Greg, um, is there something else you might want to say to conclude this uh, conversation? Um, well, there's one other topic that I dealt with in the book that might be of, of interest, and that's uh, autism. Um, and because uh, uh, the broken mirror, mirror theory of autism has been quite popular. Um, and like many theories of autism, it assumes that, um, that something is broken, that these individuals have a lack of empathy or an inability to empathize or um, to do uh, uh, such things, to, to, to um, um, read other people's minds and things like that. But there's another possibility, and that is that they're hypersensitive, and which can lead to avoidance behavior, which can then affect their ability to, uh, on when you assess them, uh, the ability to um, show empathy. Not because they can't do it, but because they're avoiding it. They're flooded. Um, and, they're flooded, and they're for avoided. Exactly. So there's um, there's lots of reasons to think that um, that a mirror neuron hypothesis, and even just a deficit. Um, uh, 
hypothesis for autism uh, is uh, valid, and there's lots of lots of data to suggest that we should be considering alternative possibilities. So that's that's another uh, another thing that was discussed in the book that maybe it's of interest to people. Great, great. Well, thanks, Greg. Sure, thank you. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Such things to to, to um, um, read other people's minds and things like that. But there's another possibility, and that is that they're hypersensitive, and which can lead to avoidance behavior, which can then affect their ability to, uh, on when you assess them, uh, the ability to um, show empathy. Not because they can't do it, but because they're avoiding it. They're flooded. Um, and, they're flooded, and they're for avoided. Exactly. So there's um, there's lots of reasons to think that um, that a mirror neuron hypothesis and even just a deficit um, uh, hypothesis for autism uh, is uh, valid. And there's lots of lots of data to suggest that we should be considering alternative possibilities. So that's that's another uh, another thing that was discussed in the book that maybe it's of interest to people. Great. Great. Well, thanks, Greg. Sure. Thank you. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.